I, I feel like if I, I wish I could play the Jeopardy music, I'd probably get us a copyright strike. So I'm not going to do that. So I'll just be like, done. No, what, what you do is you play it backwards. Yeah, but then that's how you bring Alex Trebek back from the dead. Well, yeah. Have you not seen Pet Cemetery? That never that's works out dogs. well. Dogs. It's about dogs, though. Uh, they did it with people. I mean, that's the whole point. Well, that's a that's a mistake. Yeah, it is. Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Folks, welcome to episode number 81 of the Drunken UX Podcast, and today we are going to be talking about getting your head on straight. I could not resist using the pun for this topic. What we're going to be going into is all the crap you see inside head tags and what it is, why it's there, and what you can do to use it effectively. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, lemons and asparagus. I am your host, Michael Feenan. Did you say lemons and asparagus? No, that is not what I said. I swear that's I what you said. I think you need to go I back and listen oh, to the I, roll. I, Are you feeling okay? Oh, you know what? I was wearing this hat and it was muffling the sound from the headphones. And I was like, why is it so quiet tonight? And then I just realized, yeah, that actually made a big difference. Uh, I'm your other other host, Aaron. Folks, if you're enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, please run by our kindly sponsors over at the Live at Manning conference series. They are launching off here in 2021 with their next conference that will be on February 16th from 12 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is the Graph Data Science Conference. You'll be able to hear from top data scientists and learn cutting-edge graph data techniques for making predictions and explaining outcomes you can go get your free ticket to that show that show that we were just talking about concerts earlier and now shows are online to that uh that conference over at drunkenux.com slash graph data you should come and check us out on the twitters and the facebook slash drunkenux and instagrams.com slash drunkenux podcast and also at drunkenux.com slash discord come and talk with us what about that chord? Nope. Only somebody Discord. should make like a competitor to Discord called that chord. That chord. That chord. That chord. Yeah, there. <laughs> that's even better. I wasn't even thinking about it well enough. Discord and that chord. I I don't even know what I would make it for. I just think it needs to exist. It's like the the nomenclature, or, or they need to make a companion product called that chord. And that would be good. This evening. I'm having myself a nice little glass of uh, Bowmore, twelve year Isla Smoky, not hmm. hard bag Smoky. Um, I like Bowmore. I like Bowmore because it is smoky, without like having that real strong, you know, peaty flavor to it. It's just smoky mm-hmm. and nice, um, and it it huh. leaves you feeling okay. like you drank it. Like it is. It's not in like the drunk sense. It's only bottled at forty percent, but it it just yeah it leaves a scotch flavor in your mouth, which some people don't like. Okay, I like scotch. All I right. enjoy drinking scotch. So that that is a very nice like mm, I can chew on it a little bit. Very chewy scotch. I like it though. Nice. 
I've, I'm like a little more than halfway into another finished sniper, oh and yeah. Oh no! It's. I'm pretty sure I got in a headshot already. Oh no! We are. I'm a dead man walking, Michael. Going fast enough for this. <laughs> I did. I did hear you complaining <laughs> earlier. I want to. I want to ask what this was all about. That uh, that sass was giving oh. you some grief. You were doing. You were doing <laughs> a nice fun project sass. with some sass in it. <laughs> all right, so I'm working on this app for like as a volunteer thing, and just I I had asked on Twitter last night um, to the Rails community, what is the current uh, like kind of throwaway design template where we just want our like visual appearance not to suck. But that's it. You know, like what bootstrap is yeah. to be. But like something more contemporary. And then I just remembered today about the USWDS that we talked about right, previously. Right. That's the United States design system. Yes. Um, they had a Rails gem for it, but the Rails gem was a little out of date. So I, I just grabbed the source directly and then I like I plugged it into all the spots. And it mostly worked. So like I got the CSS to render, but the fonts wouldn't render. And so what I what I learned is you have to do you have to put the fonts into your asset pipeline and then you have to use the the Rails method font dash URL instead of just regular URL. But the most important part is that you have to have the font name wrapped in double quotes in this case for the USWDS. And it's funny because there was actually a comment above this block that said to do in Rails, this doesn't work and throws an error. Not sure why. Well, I figured it out. It's because it needs double. Are you quotes. gonna make a commit back to the project? I actually, I know, I should. I probably will. I think that that would be a very nice thing for you to do for the community. <laughs> we'll drop some links in the show notes to uh, to that stuff too, in case anybody wants to follow up or hold Aaron accountable and make sure he commits his solution no. back to the project. Okay, yes, that's fine. <laughs> Folks, this week we were talking about all the crap you see in head tags. And at first this may sound like, well, duh, we know all of these things. This is why are you wasting time with elementary stuff? To guarantee you, I promise you, we're going to teach you something that you didn't know here. I I think that this this topic is is one of those... It's kind of like a bone to chew on, right? Like it's a simple topic, but there's there's some depth in here. And I, I was I was saying before the show that this reminds me of the kind of thing that if you don't know about this stuff and these details within here, you might feel compelled to solve a problem that's already been solved. You know, we all use the link tag to include our style sheets, but apparently it has a bunch of other purposes too that even I didn't know about. And so if you don't know those things, you don't know that they exist or to include them. And I think that there's a lot of that here, and it's important to to know this stuff. So It's just fluency, right? It's about fluency. Yeah. Uh, or yeah. to borrow another one of my new favorite phrases, idioms. <laughs> so when we talk about the head tag, we aren't talking about the header tag. We're talking about the head tag that comes in right after the HTML tag before your body tag. Mm -hmm. The head tag exists as a vehicle for metadata. I want to start with a simple pop quiz for Aaron. And even though he has access to the show notes, so he may muddle. Scout's honor, I won't look. Okay, well, we'll see. Uh, there are 
five acceptable children tags to have inside your head tag. What are they? All right. You can, I mean, um, reverse engineer it. Okay. Title. Link. Two. Meta. Three. Um, style. Three or four. The yeah, I even lost count. Yes. Um, I know. <laughs> oh, be the last one. Because you can use these tags for multiple purposes. Oh, a script. Script. Right. I did it. So, yes. I did not look, by the way. Script, style, link, title, meta. Which on their face, like I say, this sounds very simple, right? How are we going to do a whole episode on this? Stick with me. Now, there is actually a sixth <laughs> one. There is a sixth one that is almost never used, but can be. I And this one, I'm I'm intentionally trying to stump them. I didn't write this in the show notes, so don't even try to cheat. The sixth one is... <laughs> Base. Base? The base tag. Have you ever heard of the base tag? No. It lets you, you know, when you write relative URLs in a page, the base tag is used to determine what those URLs are relative to. By default, they are relative to the page in question, but you can enter your own base tag to change what they are relative to. It is such a unique circumstance that. If you know why you need it, you know to use it probably. And actually, I lied. There's a seventh. You could figure out what this one is based on what you know and what has already been said. It's not some weird name that you're not going to be familiar with. In fact, you know this tag. Um. This tag is a sibling to one of the other tags that is allowed in the head. Um, this tag completely includes the name of one of the five base tags. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna, um, that's the last clue I'm going to give you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that I could give you another one without literally saying it at that point. Completely. So the so the name of the other tag is completely included in this one's name. No script. Oh right. You can uh. do a script tag, and then as a it it's not often you know it's not something yeah. you see frequently anymore. But you can do a no script. So technically seven tags that you can use. Um, and we're gonna have links to like some helper articles on some of these tips, tricks, things like that. We won't go into all of them. We'll save some surprises for that. Um, the title tag, the advice, everybody knows title tag. There's nothing really special, I think, to tell you about it. It's the title of your document. It's meant to be the title of your page. I think, I think we can say some things about this in terms of like how to use it. So when you're assembling the page title, um, you want to make sure that the title of the page you are currently on is the first thing in the title. Yes. So if you're looking at the contact page, it should say contact first. The reason why is because the browser tab will show whatever the title it can. Usually it's just the first like five to eight characters. So you can that get upwards depending user. on how many tabs you have open at a given time. Mm -hmm. I, and I was doing some testing on this actually earlier just to see for myself. 
21 characters is a pretty safe number for what it's worth. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I see that right now. Like, it's, it's more at... than you would think, yeah. Um, but, I mean, it is very much dependent on how many tabs you have open. Sure. I don't think it's more than 25. I think when, when you have, like, only a couple tabs open, I think 25 is 26 is where it but, lands. But it begins from the left and then truncates right. and runs out of space. So you want to have that page title first. And then after that, you want to have – well, you can. You don't have to, but you probably should have the title of your site. So if you it's like widgets co, then you want to have like contact and then either a dash or a pipe or a separator of some kind, widgets co. And if you want to imagine, you know, why this is, if I if I'm researching some products at your website and I've got four or five tabs open and all four or five of those tabs just say widgets co, widgets co, widgets co, widgets co, uh -huh. widgets co. I, I have no idea what my individual tabs are. You want to start with most specific and work to least specific. They kn people know where they are. They they know they're on your site, and when they're looking at a bunch of tabs, you need to give them what little bit of context you can. I think it matters for SEO purposes, but but I mean, just it's free information, and you can concisely describe the page that people are visiting right now. Why not assemble it? Yeah, and you're right. By default, the title tag will be what is used in search and result pages. Mm -hmm. So what you have in that space is you know if you want to think about it in that context. That will be what people read when they see it in Google or Yahoo or Bing, as it mm -hmm. were. That's all I have to say about title. I don't know if there's anything <laughs> otherwise special or interesting about it. Um, meta tags. This is where I think we can chew the bone a little bit. There are a lot of meta tags. The meta tag itself yeah. is what it sounds like. It's the tag called meta. And it's kind of meant to be a, a Swiss Army knife tag. Well, it's it's information about the page, right? Like meta, like you know, self-describing, eponymous. Um, it's information about your information. I mean, you could put entirely self-serving information there for all sure. you care, and all anything else is going to do is it's going to see those tags and be like, "Well, I don't know what that is. I'm just not going to do anything with it." The the use case I have seen there are like, you know, some people run site crawlers, like their own site crawlers mm -hmm. for things, and they can use that to track things like last mod date or something like that. You know, they aren't, right. they aren't trying to show it to the user, but it's useful to their tools, you know, their tool sets. So they'll use a meta tag and they'll tell the system, look for this meta tag and it'll tell you what you, the, you know, our CMS will print this out when the page is updated. Now you know right. what your delta is if you're crawling the site or something along those lines. Some let's but let's talk about the common ones, right? Because there are a lot of meta tags. If you go just open up some sites right now and look at what gets put out, you're going to see a lot of meta tags. There's one I want to start with, XUA compatible. This is the HTTP-equiv um, attribute of of a possible meta tag. Usually you'll see it with content equals something along the lines of like ie equals edge that's pretty common stop using this tag yeah just don't the, this just is don't, don't use it this just is a go tag find better things to do with your I'm, time i am making it okay for you to say we don't need this anymore um the reason you see this is a backwards compatibility thing for internet explorer it was originally used so that you could say well We've designed this page to work with IE10, 
so you can tell it IE10 for your uh, compatibility so that I when somebody opens up Internet Explorer, it would basically run it in sort of a compatibility mode inside the browser so that it would render correctly. The reality is we have moved, most people aren't even bothering to support IE11 at this point. Edge is Chrome. You know, it is the WebKit engine. So there simply isn't a lot to be gained out of this unless you absolutely have to support an old version of IE, like your page is built for IE10. And if that's the if case, it is, I'm, I'm, you have my condolences. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you need to fix the bigger problem, not use this tag. <laughs> but that's why you will see that tag. Um, and I think a lot of people throw it in there out of habit at this point. Like the only reason it shows up that much is because people have copy and pasted head code for so long in a lot of cases. So stop using it, please. Like I said, yeah, my condolences. <laughs> Medicare set. This one is usually up at the top or almost top. The care set is the character set. Mm -hmm. Usually, almost always, it's set to UTF-8. I'm pretty sure every browser defaults it to UTF-8 anyway. I, you don't necessarily have to have it in there. Other values, you could theoretically see somebody set it to UTF-16. There is a 16-bit uh, version of why UTF. Why do that? Um, you, why, why? You may see it set to ASCII. ASCII is an appropriate value. You won't. <sighs> Nobody does that, but you can. Um, just to give you... I've seen it set to ISO codes before. Yeah. Yeah, it could be set to a specific ISO. Um, the difference, like, between, like, if you were to say, well, what's the difference between UTF-8 and ASCII? ASCII has a namespace for 128 characters. That's it. Mm -hmm. 128 characters is not enough to represent all the letters and, and uh, uh, glyphs and things that we need a keyboard to output, especially across multiple languages. UTF-8 an 8-bit representation of language supports 1.1 million characters. What million is significantly more than 128. A few, yeah, by just a few. A little bit, just a little bit more. I think it might be enough for most English characters. Uh, and maybe a couple maybe. glyphs. Yeah. Th and this is another one of those cases of where if you really do need to change it for encoding reasons, you know you need to change mm -hmm. it. Like, Anybody working in character sets outside of UTF-8 know they're doing it and have a reason for it, typically. Um, and at most common is probably going to be, you know, foreign language support sometimes uh, gets into other ISO character sets. Um, something else just to mention, though, about um, character sets. Browsers use other ways to determine the character set of a page. Um, mm -hmm. There is an HTTP header called content type that gets passed by the browser itself. Um, there can also be user right. settings that, you know, the individual user will have to say, I want my content in UTF-8. Um, browsers have some heuristics built in where if you don't have any of that, it will try to discern what the right character set is. So this is another one. You can throw it in there just for the sake of habit. It's not necessarily going to break anything by not having it, though. So I think it infers. I think it infers UTF-8 if you don't provide it anything, but it's good to provide it regardless. Yeah. The next uh, meta tag that I'm going to tell you not to use is meta keywords. Yeah, remember when those were relevant? Uh, those were relevant a long time ago. Yeah. 
there is an article, there, a rather seminal article from 2002 written by Danny Sullivan that was called The Death of a Meta Tag. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2002, he wrote this article about how meta keywords were not useful. The basic problem just came down to early search engines used keywords because it was an effective way. It's just like using a card catalog, right? Keywords were a way of indexing content and our tools weren't smart enough to figure out keywords, you know, on their own. Right. But it didn't take long for people to learn, well, I'll just put the keywords in that I want people to find regardless. This is before Google's page rank algorithm. Oh yes. Like this goes way back. I mean, like in 2002, you know, things were still remarkably rudimentary. Well, I well actually, let me correct that. PageRank might have been around, but SEO as an industry wasn't really it, mature. Yet. The algorithms were still very simplistic. Yeah. Basically worked on indexing and matching. Yeah, there was sort of this understanding that like using the keywords thing was intended to be done in good faith and People immediately, <laughs> people people did not use them. Not using them in good faith, and so because of them, we can't have nice things. To this day, um, depending on who you talk to in SEO fields, but also people who work, you know, behind the scenes, some will actually tell you that they use meta keywords as an indicator of low quality content. Um, they mm. they can count against you, um, or like even like you can use them and you can use them right. And they know if you're using them right. And it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, at at best, they will do nothing for you. And at worst, they will be used as a signal that your content may be spam. So, mm-hmm. but here's the thing. It's not that simple. You probably should be leaving this out if you work in any kind of like highly competitive space where you're seeing a lot of like keyword bidding for things like advertising, cost per click right. stuff. Like if you are... You know, to go back to Aaron, you said widget co, you know, if you're widget co yeah. and you are trying to bid on keywords like widgets and good widgets and best widgets and things like that, you don't want those keywords just necessarily out in the wild on those pages because what you're doing is giving your competitors advantage on your own SEO strategy. <laughs> They can look at that. Oh, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's your. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. You're just giving the competitive advantage to them by saying, "Here's the keywords we're targeting. Have fun," and they can go bid those same keywords. Then, as a result, so probably don't make that obvious uh, and don't put them out there like that. You probably should include them if you're using a custom search engine that takes advantage of them. This used to be something like. The old Google search appliance, the Google mini, you could have them index Mm. things like custom meta fields. So you could say, hey, we've got a keyword field. Use that as part of the signal, you know, in terms of how you're indexing content on our site. Um, You could still do this with other, you know, you could have Elasticsearch do it. You could make Solar do it. Um, There are a number of those tools. They also don't have to. And the reality is... Most of those platforms, um, obviously can't buy a GSA anymore or anything, but um, most like self-run tools have much better options available to them than that. So, Hmm. but if you, if that's your platform and if it's some legacy tool that, you know, is baked into a lot of other stuff, 
you may be stuck with that, you know, for a while until you can get off of it. So that is a reason to have them because you are deriving value yourself from them. You're not like betting on Google's SEO algorithm or something. Then you probably could think about including them if you really care about your international SEO. Uh, what people have discovered is uh, some of the international search engines like Yandex, Baidu, and Naver, Navar, Nav, hmm. Nav, Nav, Navar, I don't know. Night. Neighbor, Neighbor. I hadn't heard of that one, but it, it came up in the research. Um, they may be using keywords as Neighbor. a signal for search quality. Neighbor. So it may be worth including them if you really care about internet. If you're an international company and you really care about international search results, they could be factoring in there. Um, no guarantees. I, I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with including them in the good faith way they were meant to be used before. Like if you've got like a handful of keywords that you think are relevant for the page that you're displaying and you want to list those out on your meta tag, I say go for it. I, you know what I think the, the problem is and why at the end of my, my last point here is probably just leave them out. The, yeah, I mean, you could do that too. The, the reason I, I say that is including them is just extra maintenance then. It means constantly being sure that your content is still being honest to those keywords. Those keywords mm -hmm. may be perfectly accurate when you first create a page, but as that page changes over the course of a year or two or three years, maybe at the end of that, it no longer reflects some of those keywords and somebody has to go yeah. in and maintain them. And so it's, it is an extra signal that you sort of have to handhold. And because modern search engines rely on keywords in the sense of, they analyze your content and they're already smart enough to know, A, what are the actual keywords you are using in your content, but what are also, you know, the the synonyms and stuff that people would look for that would get them to this stuff. They just don't need it. It's the tools have outgrown that resource, so to speak. So you, if you use it, use them in good faith. If you don't need them, don't yeah. bother. Uh, to go along with that, though, now we get into the stuff that we do say absolutely keep them. Meta description. Mm -hmm. So we say don't use keywords. Why would we say use a description? The description is used. By default, your meta description is what will show up like in search engines when you share something on Facebook. Right. Yeah. Similar to a title, there is sort of a limit on the useful length of it. Generally, people say don't go over 300 characters. Realistically, only about 160 characters of it is useful to the end user, to somebody else. Because whereas, and I, I said this earlier, like the head tag is all metadata about your page. It's not meant for human eyes, meant for machines, mm -hmm. but machines can make it human readable. So when Google generates a search engine result page, it takes your meta description and presents that to the user but they're not going to get more than about 160 characters of that. So, and on mobile devices, it's even less. I think it's like 130 characters on mobile devices. So less than a tweet, less than an old tweet from a couple of years ago. <laughs> classic tweet. A classic, yeah. <laughs> tweet light, tweet, yeah. A tweet classic, yeah, I like that one better. Um, 
But that's what the meta, meta description is for. You should absolutely have it. And at the very least, in a basic CMS, WordPress, whatever, make the meta description just be the excerpt from the post and just at least be the start mm. of the content. Oh, that's a good idea. So, you know, it's the teaser or whatever, but there's something there to show up. Because here's what's going to happen. If you don't include one, Google's going to try to figure it out for you. Yeah. The, the search engine crawlers and indexers are going to say, well, we want to show the user something about your page. So we're going to just go with the first content we think is right. And don't let them decide that for you. Um, and in the best case, make it custom. Like actually craft a description that is meant to be read from something like a search engine page um, for the user. Give them a very brief, you know, here's what you're going to find on this page, um, even though the page itself may have a ton of content on it. So mm -hmm. good strategy. And again, we'll have some articles that have additional uh, strategy for stuff like that. Um, robots, the robots tag. Robots tag is fun. That's where you get to say which robots are allowed to visit your site, right? Uh, yeah, like if like C3PO let data or... in, keep C3PO out. Johnny, Johnny five. But the, the robots tag is really about uh, Google and Yahoo and other crawlers in general. There are, there are crawlers that are not search engines for people who may not uh, know that um, you can have crawlers for all kinds of things, but the robots tag lets you set things like no follow. So you tell it, Hey, you can crawl this page, but don't follow any of the links that are on it. Um, you know, especially if it's something archival, perhaps. Um, you can have no index. With no index, search engine sees that page, and they should. They, you know, they are by no means bound to, but most of them will honor it and say, oh, we shouldn't index this page. We should pretend like it doesn't exist and just move on. Um, that's really useful. You know where this is, uh, where I find it, like, super helpful is... We have development and staging websites that are technically out mm. in the wild, like they are publicly accessible staging sites, um, and we don't want Google picking up on those and indexing those and thinking they're a conflict with our production site or anything. So right. being able to leave the robots, and we, of course, use like a robots.txt file and stuff too, and that is along the same lines um, in terms of you know functionality, but... This just lets you have granular per page level robot settings if you want to control uh, whether or not something crawls it or follows it. And you can leave it off. If you don't care at all, you don't need to include this tag. But if you want mm -hmm. some gatekeeping on that, you know, maybe it's uh, uh, protected content. Maybe it's content that you want for paying customers, you know, but you don't have it password protected or something. There's plenty of reasons why um, you would... You'd want that. So that's it's a useful little little helper guy that can live out there. So after robots, I have viewport. The meta viewport tag. This one's a I I actually don't know for sure what this does. I've always kind of assumed just from the attributes that it has that it's kind of defining like the what what the viewport is intended to portray yeah this is like if it zooms in or not this is one that is very i think along what you were saying earlier right i think people copy and paste it a lot without really understanding what it does so mm -hmm. first and foremost 
Yeah, I'm one of those people. <laughs> if you do not have a responsive website, you should not be using this tag ever. This tag is meant to be used for responsive websites and responsive websites only. Um, and specifically what it is doing, and again, the, the, this is one that's also incredibly hard. You almost need to set up a page and play with the settings and look at it on a mobile device and really see how your settings are affecting um, what it does on a mobile device. But what it's basically doing is you are telling the browser how to scale the viewport. The viewport isn't necessarily the screen width. The viewport could be wider or narrower um, in some cases, depending on what your, you know, your situation is. You may say, my viewport has to be 800 pixels wide. Like the stuff we built is not made to be seen at less than 800 pixels wide, and you'll get horizontal scrolling in those cases. Um, it lets you set scale with height as well, technically. Um, and so here's a good way to look at this, right? Have you ever, Aaron, like, you'll see this a lot on, let's say, a news article. Go to a news article's website, right? And it looks nice. It looks like a nice size. You can scroll on it up and down. But you can't pinch zoom it. Have you ever have that. you ever taken note of that? I really loathe it when I can't do it, and it never occurs to me. <laughs> it, it's one of those things where like, I work in technology, but sometimes I'm just like, oh, I guess today the technology isn't working like it's supposed to. Oh well, and I don't ever really think that like there might actually be a real like reason why it's misbehaving. I'm just like. Oh, the gremlins aren't like cooperating today. Nope. This tag is the reason. Because yeah. you can basically say, oh no, our content is responsive. It's set to already be viewed right. We don't want people zooming in or out on it. The big where where you see this really breaking stuff is when people do it on a non-responsive site. And as a result, you end up with a whole like giant web page zoomed all the way out. Like it looks like you're looking at Amazon from 50,000 feet or something. Amazon doesn't do this for what it's worth, but like, you know, a site like that where you have to pinch zoom just to get in on it, but you can't because they've locked in the, uh, the scale. It's, it, it's a way of controlling responsive behavior on devices. It came out originally. The whole reason this happened was because in 2007, Apple released a new product that people might know as the iPhone. The iPhone, iPhone. I bet that'll get big. It, you know, it actually. Like a... The problem wasn't that it was going to get big; it's that its screen was very small. And with a small screen and a small browser, people were very quickly having to figure out how do we make our websites look good on this fancy new device that people are now walking around with that lets them see our page anywhere. Um, and so that that was the birth of this tag. Like it came out because of mobile Safari. Um, and so, the, like I say, the easy way to understand this is go read up on it and then go experiment with it and look at it on your site. If you have a good responsive site, you don't need this tag. Um, if you have a non-responsive site, you don't want this tag. It's, it's kind of a weird, like, there's sort of a weird in-between area where you want to use this. Um, and... Yeah, all I can say is go go play with it and kind of see how that affects things. Um, the last group, the last big group here 
is sort of a collection of tags known as open graph. Open, open graph. Uh, you've done open graph stuff uh, with things. Is it like R- RDF and things? Um, okay, so open graph is a metadata standard in the same sense that, you know, schemas are metadata, microformats. Yeah. Um, the original open graph protocol um, was based on RDFA. Oh, it's the OG tags. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's it's this RDF format that lets you provide any... Because, again... R- the, RDF is rich document yes. format. Um, the meta tags, by their nature, are just mm-hmm. a tag with attributes like property or name or content. And what you put in those, like we say, is up to you. You can make up your own tags. And so what the Open Graph Protocol did is they said, cool, that's what we're going to do. We're going to use the meta tag and create our own uh, data format that just sits on top of this nice, flexible meta tag. What they look like is it's a meta tag and the attribute is like property equals OG colon site underscore name. And they'll have like content equals something. So where this gets used and why this matters, Open Graph is a social, it's a social media thing. It's designed to help when sharing content. You know, Facebook is the one who created it. This is. It's for making the sharing cards. Like when you when you share to Twitter or Facebook. Right, right. This is what it includes. So this is how it gets that information. And it's how a page, when you look at it, can have one title, but it actually reads as a different title in, in the browser. Maybe it doesn't include the site name, or maybe it includes right. some abbreviated words to take you or make use of the space. So there are a lot of these fields, as it turns out. You normally will see title, type, image, URL, but it actually goes way deeper than that. You can have audio, you can have description. So, like in the case of description, if you have an open graph description, that will take precedence over your meta description when you're sharing something. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, Facebook will default to meta description. That's why these are feel like, like why, why, why would I put the open graph title? I already have a title tag. That's right. And it will use the title tag. It will use the meta description. But this gives you a way to provide a particularly curated experience for those share cards. Um, knowing that they have limited space to display text. Um, the image uh, is incredibly important because you can have different images. Twitter can have different images from Facebook that way. They have different ratios. They have different uh, image sizes in their feeds. So you can define different images that way. Um, locale, you can define locale. You can provide secure URLs for your images. Um you can define height and width so that it knows exactly how tall those images are. Um, there's a, just a lot of different ways to define this data depending on, like, realistically, and I don't think we're doing this, and as soon as I start talking about it, now I think I should go check this. Um, I should include an open graph audio tag in <gasps> the Drunken UX's uh, episode posts because I could define the actual audio source in that open graph tag so that when it gets shared, Facebook knows that there's audio content associated with this. 
Yeah, boy. So that that's us getting SEO minded a little bit there. Or I guess that's not so much SEO as it is uh, SEM, so social marketing. I'm sorry, SEM is search Scanning engine marketing, not social marketing. It's SEM is scanning electron microscope. Uh, it is also that believe it or not words can or letters can mean many things so the uh so that's that's your meta tags that's the roundup let us know about other meta tags that you use or you like there are many more obviously um common ones uncommon ones but uh the last chunk of stuff i want to talk about is the funnest part which is css and javascript so css and javascript often often is included in the head um, CSS in particular tends to get included with a tag called link. This is not a link to the past. This is not Zelda, a link to the past. This is not, that was a fun I don't game. know the Zelda games very well, actually. Uh, the link tag is it technically has nothing to do with style sheets. Um, so before we mm. actually talk about style sheets, I want to talk about the link tag and, and what its role is. Yeah. It, the link there's what what is it 20 27 different types of usages for the link tag yeah i think i've seen maybe a handful of these the, the link before. tag specifically specifies relationships between the current document and an external resource that's straight from the mdn um the link tag is just there to literally link one thing to this page um mm -hmm. so yeah there are 27 different and that's a moving number depending on where we are in the spec it's a living spec some links are being deprecated new ones are being added um the one you see with css obviously the most often is style sheet mm -hmm. the, what you see and i should also say this when we say that link type what we mean is when you see link rel equals Rel is the yeah. relationship. Right. What is the relationship? And strictly speaking, that applies to anything that is a link, not just the link tag. So an A tag can have a rel, a relationship. Attribute. Right. Yeah. So one, of, I'm looking at the list right here. One of the attributes is external. So on an A tag, if you have a link that's going out of the site, you can do rel equals external. And the bonus here is that you can use CSS and use an attribute selector to have those links show up differently or have them display with an icon. Wikipedia, or right? Wikipedia yeah. is the classic example of this. Anytime they have a link that goes away from Wikipedia, they have the little away arrow next to it. Yeah, every just use a, an attribute selector and just say every A tag that has rel equals external. Mm -hmm do this little after element and show an SVG with an arrow or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but, and there's a list and we'll have the list because not every list can apply to every um, tag, but there mm -hmm. are a lot of other ones that you may see done with uh, the link tag canonical. Um, canonical is one that I've used a lot because we have several blogs at our company and those blogs mm -hmm. share content. Oh yeah. So to tell Google that, okay, we have we we don't want you to index five versions of the same content, which Google will score you down for. They will think you're just spamming content if they detect many pages with the exact same thing. So instead, on your duplicate pages, you put a link rel equals canonical, and then include the URL of the original post, and then it just knows oh 
this is just content being repurposed. All I need to care about is the original one. Um, canonical can be very important, even though, you know, a lot of people may not run into a need for it. Um, author. You can have, you can, I've seen that you one. Have something, Usually on yeah. WordPress. Icon. Icon shows up a lot. Um, you'll see like the Apple icon, right? Um, this is uh, uh, a way to show the not just the browser but like if you if you're on your mobile device this is where i i get a lot of use out of this if you have a web page like i've got a restaurant i love um but they aren't on doordash or they don't have their own they use like one of those platforms for online ordering and so i just pull that web page to my you know my phone screen and it just creates an app like shortcut there and using the hmm. icon link tells your phone what uh, what graphic to display for that. So you can have a custom graphic for it um, that is specific to your page or your item at that point. Um, so it's like, what is it? Apple touch icon. I think that's the one that Apple uses and you could have, you know, others defined there. Um, license. You'll see license frequently. Um, you'll see. Uh, a manifest. I've never seen that one before. Yeah. There's or module e preload. There's manifest module preload. and yeah preload is the one here we're going to talk about in, in a minute about how important that one is for performance. So links can do a lot of things, but most people get introduced to them as the way you include a style sheet. So let's talk about style sheets. By their nature, when you include link rel equal style sheet and your CSS file, that is what we call render blocking. And sometimes you will want that. Maybe you don't want your page to be visible until the style sheet is loaded. That's fine. That is a choice you can make. Um, in some cases, you may say, well, I want people to see my content first. I don't want that to, I don't want them to be blocked by just not having our fonts yet or something like that. So sometimes you may not want that stuff to be render blocking and there are ways to get around that. One of the common ones that we're going to get to here at the very end is, putting it at the bottom of the page so that the head's processed and then it goes through all the DOM content and gets that rendered before it gets to your CSS. To your point, uh, Aaron, preload, you can actually use a link rel equals preload um, and use an, an, another attribute called as, as style sheet and give it your CSS file and it will load your CSS asynchronously that way. Or it's, it's semi-asynchronously. Basically what it does is it moves that to the very top priority of what it's supposed to download while it's doing everything else. So you can speed up that getting of that, those elements. I, I see on here, I'd never seen this before, but one of the ones you can use, there's rel equals first and there's rel equals next, rel equals last and rel equals prev, um, which is short for previous. What's worth uh, first and last are deprecated. What they do, though, is they specify if you have a series of pages that are in a sequence or a series of links that are in a sequence and one of them goes forwards, one of them goes backwards, you can use these rel attributes for yeah. that. Same with prefetch. Prefetch is all about the next page, not the page you're on. So you could say link rel equals prefetch and it will tell the browser, hey, the user is probably going to go to this stuff next. So you should probably go ahead and just download it and have it ready. Browser support for it is a little funky because of bandwidth type issues. Like on a mobile device, 
being greedy about data usage is a little frowned upon. So there's there are some uh, some browser behaviors to just be aware of with that stuff. Uh, but with your what what you get with style sheets is this sort of interesting crossbreed of linking to style sheets or including styles in line, which you'll see a lot of, um, or one of the new sort of uh, hotnesses is putting all the CSS that you need for all your quote unquote above the fold content, having that readily inlined in the header in the head um, and having the rest of your CSS at the bottom of the page. Uh, so oh, yeah, there's, there's some combination type things there. Similarly with scripts, with script tags, you can use the async or defer uh, attributes. Cause again, mm -hmm. JavaScript will be render blocking if, if the browser hits it and it's being told, go get this file or run all this JavaScript. But if you say async or defer, async means do it now, but keep doing the other stuff. Defer says do it at the end. So there's, it's a flow control type thing. So it's, it's all performance. It's all about just trying to get your stuff quicker. And here's how I want to talk about this. I was looking at some pages. I just went and grabbed some, and I said, how big are their heads? I'm just curious. Like, how much stuff has to be processed before... About seven. Seven. Just seven? No seven. more than that? Just okay. seven. Um, well, that is a number that is included. Uh, Amazon had 242 lines of code. Well, 240 lines of code inside their head. Google had 116, NFL had 758, Reddit had 252, and Patreon, my god, Patreon had 4,298 <laughs> lines. So, why? Do they have, does, does Patreon have 4,298 meta tags? No, they do not. What, <laughs> it's like inline CSS right. and JavaScript. What they have there. is inline yeah. CSS and JavaScript. When we say inline, we mean it's not in a .js file that's being read in or a .css file. It has just been, not, I would say copy and pasted. It's probably rendered. It's not that somebody actually writing it there, but their build tools or whatever are just putting it all in the head. Now, there are reasons to do that. A, when you put your CSS or your JavaScript straight into the header, it reduces an HTTP request. You don't have to call that file now and wait on it. As soon as the HTML document is read, all of your supporting material is read in with it. Um, AMP is all about this. If you know about AMP pages or have used AMP pages, um, mm -hmm. they require you to include your CSS in line because all about sense. speed it's all about you know tiny file size right. so there is value to and and to what i had just mentioned you know putting all of your above the fold css you want that to be immediately available because you want all that first stuff to look right um but the stuff below the fold isn't as important so if that css is loaded last no big deal the problem with this approach is it's not being done efficiently in Patreon's case. The Patreon website has all of this stuff, but they aren't, they aren't minifying any of it. 
none of it's minified. So the amount of space they could save just by reducing new lines and white space, they could save a ton of bandwidth on those pages by doing that. Because you are now assuming they are doing this on every page. You know, the thing about having a JavaScript file or a CSS file is that can be cached. But if you're rendering all of this out in the head every time, it means that entire payload has to be downloaded every time somebody visits the page. Right. So it makes sense for a thing like AMP because it's single serving, but not so much when you're browsing a site and viewing more than one page. Right. Um, Yeah, it's just I, I would not recommend somebody build a page that way um it's inefficient it's non-performant and there are just better ways of going about it this gets us to sort of the wrap up here which is what's the difference between putting all this stuff and when i say all this stuff the css and the javascript in the head versus right before the end of the body Mm. one is fuck (laughs) flash of unstyled content by having your C- it should be like folk. It's, yeah, I don't like that. I, I just I folk. just want to say fuck. Uh, folk having your CSS in the head means your page will look right once it renders. If it's before the closing tag of the body, your page can render before the CSS is ready. That is neither good nor bad. It is just a choice you make as a designer and developer whether or not you want that. That's just a consequence that you should know about. JavaScript, if it's in the head, now there are certainly ways you can, if you're, this is assuming you're not deferring it, this is assuming you don't have an, your stuff inside in uh, a window on load event handler. JavaScript in the head cannot act on the body because the body hasn't been loaded yet. So if you've got JavaScript that is manipulating your page, it's better to defer it or put it before the closing body tag just for those reasons. It's kind of just a, a matter of figuring out what what you need and where you need it in that situation. Because uh, you, you are not required to put either in either place. It's just a understand the consequences, you know, of doing one versus the other at that point. What I would do, the way I would solve this problem is, in an ideal world, because I, I like the idea of saying, Take all of your critical CSS, that's the CSS in the top chunk of your page, and have that minified and compressed down, all the white space gone, um, all the comments gone, all the new lines gone, turn it into the smallest blob you can have, and put it in the head, and then have Mm -hmm. all the rest of your JavaScript in a CSS file in the footer. Um. If you are huge on web fonts and you absolutely need those web fonts there, use a preload tag to bump your fonts all the way up to top priority so that they are ready and Mm. and raring to go. There are some other, if you use font display, you can control uh, uh, web font uh, behavior as well. That's a different topic. Um, With JavaScript, I just make it a habit. I just always put my JavaScript in the footer. I don't like the idea that I need JavaScript doing something in my head. The only exception to that is Google Tag Manager because they need to be in the head for that because it acts on the page and does things and all of that. So 
Um, it kind of needs to be up there, but that's a special case. It's a third party tool. That's where it needs to go. Um, that's my advice. Agree, disagree, but you do what's right for your website. That was a great story, Michael. Thank you for that story. Uh, no story. It's advice. You can take it or leave it. I'll take it. Thanks. But that's what we got. Uh, so let us know. What what tags did we not talk about? What what advice did we give that was wrong? Uh, did we you know did did we tell tell it the wrong way? Let us know, um, and go look through. We'll have in the show notes a bunch of links to advice on everything from Open Graph to uh, loading non critical CSS later uh, to using your link relationship uh, uh, attributes and all the things in between. Otherwise, stick with us for a minute. We'll be right back. This episode of the Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by the Live at Manning Conference Series. Join them this February 16th from noon to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard for the Graph Data Science Conference live-streamed on Twitch. Data is connected. Uncover your data's relationship and structures at Live at Manning with the Graph Data Science Conference. You'll hear from top data scientists and learn cutting-edge graph data techniques for making predictions and explaining outcomes. If big data is your thing, if data science is something that you love leaning into, you can sign up to get a free ticket to this conference by visiting drunkenux.com slash graphdata. That's drunkenux.com slash G-R-A-P-H-D-A-T-A. Folks, I hope this was helpful for you. Uh, we'll plan to do some more little uh, topics on other kind of basic baseline uh, site development type stuff here in the near future. Um, I like this. I think it's a good way to kind of dig into things that we take for granted. Um, I think a lot of the stuff is easy to just not think about. Um, you know, the reality is if you've got 4,000 lines of, of code in your head, that's 4,000 lines of stuff that the browser has to download before it can even start rendering a web page. So... Yeah, this kind of stuff, I think, does matter for a number of reasons, from SEO, performance, um, to sharing, and everything in between. So uh, let us know what you think and what's helpful for you or tags that you find useful or tags you don't find useful. Um, and give us a shout over on Twitter or Facebook at Slash Drunken UX. Um, Instagram is Slash Drunken UX Podcast. And our chat room is always available at drunkenux.com slash Discord. Uh, got a lot more coming up this season. But for now, I just want to tell you, we've got, we've got things. You've you got things? I don't know, man. I gotta stop drinking these. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I need you to drink a few more. We've got four more episodes to I record think... before we get, get off the horn tonight. Tonight? Yeah. I've got oh. guests coming in here in a minute. Oh my god. I, th- I wonder how many I have to drink before I hit, like, Balmer's Peak and I say really profound things, but not, like, blacking out and passing out. Uh, I hate to tell you this. What is... But it's a myth. Did I already jump No, no, it's, it's just a myth. Because, it, listen, the only possible way you could do that and actually, like, have it make sense is if you told people to keep their personas close, but... Their users. Oh. Bye bye. Ah, <laughs> uh, you fucker. <laughs>